My name is Kelly Glover, and I listen to Backstage Chats with Women in Music because it looks at music from a social, political, cultural context while making it all fun. There was an old darkie, his name was Uncle Ned. Died long ago, long ago. He had no wool on the top of his head in the place where the wool ought to grow. Lay down the shovel and the hoe, hang up the fiddle and the bow, for there's no hard work for poor old Ned. He's gone where the good darkies go. You just heard a recording of my mother singing Uncle Ned, written by Stephen Foster in 1848. Now, my mother knows the song because her elementary school teacher was a big Stephen Foster fan and taught the students at his school how to sing his songs. Other Foster songs you'd recognize are Oh Susanna, Camp Town Races, and Old Folks at Home, also known as Swanee River. In the 19th century, the song Uncle Ned and many of Foster's other songs were considered a kinder version of blackface minstrel music, which typically mocked slaves as dim-witted, lazy, and fond of watermelon and chicken. By the time my mother learned Uncle Ned in the 1950s, the N-word had been replaced by darkies, and eventually the word darkies was replaced by good men. It's a prime example of whitewashing blackface minstrel music. Today, I'm really excited about our special guest, who is a scholar, an entrepreneur, and a singer-songwriter. The universe brought us together through a private Facebook group called Paradigm Shifters that's hosted by Life Mastery Coach Judy Matejcik. The timing of it really couldn't be better. As right now, our society is having the tough but necessary conversations about systemic racism, and in this case, as it pertains to music. She is the creator, composer, and producer of the educational game app and cartoon, You Better Sing, and just became the newest doctoral research assistant at Texas State University's School Improvement Program. Please welcome the natural hair loving Brazilian jazz dancing music education revolutionary, Kelly Glover. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for being on the show today, Kelly. It's a beautiful Saturday afternoon, although we're still kind of isolated. Yeah, we still are, but we're all staying safe. So, hey, I'm okay with it. That's right. We're all staying safe. And that means that today's conversation is happening remotely. We're using Zencaster. So a shout out to them and thank them for helping us out here. We love to start our conversations with the shakedown, which is a set of questions, actually short answer questions. Okay. That we ask all of our special guests to kind of get warmed up. Are you ready to roll? Yeah. All right. Let's shake it down with the first question. Who was your first concert? Oh my gosh. Cameo. Cameo, the R&B group. Oh my gosh. Cameo. And what year was that? Ooh, I think that was 1980 or 1981. One of those. My big sister took me to that concert. Uh, What a good big sister. I know, right? Awesome. Well, here's the next question. What was the first album you bought with your own money? Oh my gosh. I want to say Stevie Wonder. I'm not positive, but I want to say 
Oh gosh, was it Stevie Wonder? I'm guessing it was Stevie Wonder because he's my earliest memories of music. Obviously a huge inspiration. Yes. Which artist or band is in heavy rotation on your playlist right now? Okay, I just drove down to my parents. So I was listening to some Katie Lang, her Ingenue, I guess that's how you pronounce it. The, the album that had Constant Craving on it, Katie Lang. And I was also listening to Unknown Mortal Orchestra. I think that's their name. I love Katie Lang. She's got the smoothest vocals. Yes. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, next question. Which woman has had the most influence on your career? I think her first name is Marie, but it's the group Zet Mama. They were really, really popular in the late 80s, early 90s. And she's an ethnomusicologist, but she also had a female singing group. And their music was all about bringing together European and Asian and African music and making it funky. And she did some really cool compilations with Erica Badu and some some other famous singers. But yeah, she's an ethnomusicologist who had a singing group. She really, really, really inspired me to be the, the type of scholar and musician that I am today. If you could have dinner with any woman, dead or alive, who would it be? Okay, uh, Oprah Winfrey. I would love to have dinner with her because I love when she marries spirituality with everything. Yes. And you know, you are not the first person to say that. (laughs) We have had a a couple of folks on our show who has said Oprah Winfrey. So Oprah, if you're out there, if you're listening, we have people who want to have dinner with you and I would love to be invited as well. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Here's our next and final shakedown question. What is one life goal you'd like to accomplish before climbing that golden stairway to heaven? I would love for all human beings to really feel their connection. And I want to be a part of helping every human being to see that God lives within each person and that we treat each other like the gods that we are. Yeah, I think, you know what? I think you're already involved in that whole process and spiritual transition with your work. And that's part of the reason why I'm so excited to have our conversation today. We're going to take a super duper quick break and we'll be right back after this short message. Save the date. You, your mother, and your daughter are invited to join us on April 23rd for our Mother's Day online concert and jewelry show co-hosted with Kendra Scott Gives Back. Catch a live musical performance from a super special guest while viewing Kendra Scott's hottest jewelry trends. And who can resist competing for our music trivia prizes? A portion of your online purchases benefit Horizon Music Foundation programs. So you give back while thanking mom. Sign up for our Spotlight newsletter to get the details. Click pause on your podcast player, visit backstagechats.com, and click the newsletter link. When you're finished, come back and listen to the rest of this episode. All done? Great. Let's get back to the chat. And we're back. Once again, we're chatting with music scholar, educator, and entrepreneur, Kelly Glover. Now, the first thing I have to ask, this is your married last name, but are you related to Danny Glover? 
No, people ask me that all the time. No, this is my married last name, but I'm not related to Danny Glover, but I am related to Sam Cooke and I'm related to Prince. <gasps> Ooh, how are you related to them? Um, I'm related to Sam Cooke. I, I think he's my third cousin, if I remember correctly, on my mom's side. And we found out that we're related to to Prince right after he died. They had these newspaper articles about where he comes from. He is from Growing Valley, Louisiana, that that's where his family's from. And that's where my family's from. And they had all of our family last names in this newspaper article about all the people who he was related to. And we're like, oh my God, that's us. And my great grandfather relocated to Minneapolis at the same time that his, uh, I, I forgot who it was in his family went. So yeah, I have family in Minneapolis that went up there. I think it was in the 1940s. But yeah, child, I'm related to Prince. That is just awesome. <laughs> but yeah, we didn't get any of we didn't get any of this estate. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, how wonderful. It sounds to me then like music is in the genes, huh? Yeah, I think I think you're right. Both sides, both sides. Of course, one of the things that I wanted to start off with as far as your work and what you're doing is I was hoping that you could explain for our audience a little bit about the doctoral research that you're doing at Texas State University. I just started, I literally just started last week, and I'll be working for two different professors. With one professor, she's a Latina female, and we're doing work around women of color in higher ed and the stressors that that they go through so she's doing a study study on all that on stressors in general but um especially stressors for women of color and what that looks like and with my other professor he is letting me drive the research so we're looking at two different things we're looking at music education but from a decolonizing the the classroom point of view and we're also looking at possibly doing a study with HeartMath Institute, which um, in HeartMath Institute, um, I did a project, a research project a year and a half ago using software that measures what's going on with yourself emotionally, looking at your, your heartbeat, looking at heart rate variance and how that affects your, your mind and your heart and using heart coherence breathing to help calm you down to also help you to think better and more clearly. Gotcha. Now with the other professor who you're working with, you had talked about the decolonization of content in the schoolrooms and you study ethnomusicology. And I'd like, if you can please for us, explain what is ethnomusicology and how does it tie in with decolonizing the classroom? Okay. So good question. Ethnomusicology is the study of music from a social and cultural context. And what I would like to do from what I I learned when I was studying ethnomusicology and music education, getting my master's degree, is looking at how colonizing practices affect what we teach and how we teach in academia, in music academia and in public schools. That's what I did uh, for my master's project, and I'd like to continue with that, basically decolonizing the music room or either decolonizing the arts in general. When we had our first conversation, 
it was a learning experience for me. And I, that's part of the reason why I got so excited about this. I was taken with your knowledge about the origination of blackface minstrel songs, which apparently has had a big influence in our classroom. And I was hoping that you could speak to the origin of blackface minstrel songs and its adaptation into folk music, which then, of course, went on into the classroom. I was hoping you could give us a little insight into that. When blackface minstrel songs were really popular, of course, you you did have Black performers doing blackface minstrel songs, but of course, um, you had lots of white performers who got really who gained popularity in um, American pop culture, making fun of black slaves. A lot of these songs at the turn of the century were changed somewhat. Some of the lyrics were changed in order to make them more palatable. And so they ended up being some of the context was quote unquote whitewashed. And so a lot of the songs Mm -hmm. that, that are being used in music classrooms for elementary school students have just recently been flagged as as songs that were used during blackface minstrel songs. So for example, the song Dinah, Blow Your Horn. Dinah is a name that was used for a lot of slaves. It was like a, just a general name used for black female slaves. And there are lots of different names that were used and they're kind of used as as cold. Most people don't know that that Dinah is a name that they just use for for lots of black women in general. And some of the songs ethnomusicologists have have uncovered sexual undertones, sometimes dealing with abusing women, especially black women. Of course, black faith minstrel songs made fun of the dialect and everything that that slaves were were using. And when these songs were were being put into textbooks to use kind of like as nursery rhymes and and play games for children by white people, they took the sting out of the pain that the blackface minstrel composers were, were putting. They took some of the pain out by changing some of the words. We discovered in 2019 that many of these songs that are used in the Kodai music education pedagogy that there are so many of these songs that are in that are pervasive in the music education literature for for elementary school children that a hundred songs have been flagged. So now the debate is: Should we use these songs that are rooted in pain and making fun of black people, or should we use them to teach about the the pain of slavery and the pain of blackface minstrel shows and also the pain that was inflicted on the black people who were actually performing these songs. One of the things that astounded me is I didn't know what the actual story was behind what Dinah Blow Your Horn means. Can you explain that to me so that we would say, okay, if we were in an educational situation where there were students who you were going to try and say, this is what the origin is and this is what it really meant, what would you tell them? Dinah is is a character from the the whole minstrel narrative. Dinah is an untidy slave cook from Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Dinah was cooking in the kitchen. One place I've, I've read is that blow your horn didn't necessarily mean it's time to come to dinner. 
it meant something sexual, uh, as in oral sex. And also I found out when giving a professional development about whiteness in music education, that one of my um, former co-workers who is from um, Korea, they only taught them songs from blackface minstrel shows that were written by Stephen F. Foster, who is the white man. He's considered the father of blackface minstrel songs that in actually in South Korea, she was only educated when it came to the elementary portion of her music education, that they only were taught songs by Stephen F. Foster, the father of blackface, white father of blackface minstrel songs. So that's not something that that just happens in the United States. It happens in other parts of the world too, without people realizing the the pain behind those songs. It astounds me that this very particular genre and era of music is something that was still being taught even across the world, on the other side of the world. I mean, how does that happen? You know, you would think that some other form of music or genre or even language would have been, you know, like Korean would have been the main focus in a Korean music classroom. This was systematically done in the 1850s in Europe, in in England. There was a decision that was made to make music education come from a Eurocentric point of view and to be taught all around the world. So for for example, my master's project was about why at an historically Black college, Howard University, where I got my undergraduate degree, why we were not allowed to sing jazz, why we were not allowed to sing gospel, why we were not, not allowed to sing rock and roll. We weren't allowed to sing any Black genres of music in academia at a Black university at the Eastman School of Music. Black music genres are not allowed. And it's not just at Howard or or Eastman. It's just not studied in academia because, again, in the 1850s, there was a decision that, that was made in England that music education needs to come from a Eurocentric standpoint and only the bel canto style would be studied because all of this came into fruition during the time of social Darwinism. And so people of color, Eastern Europeans, Asians. It was a reaction against all of the European and Asian immigrants who who were starting to come over to the United States. They wanted to keep the Anglo-Saxon, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant aesthetic as the way to go. The hegemony, the, the cultural hegemony of the European aesthetic was deliberately set as the pedagogy, as the way to educate everyone, not just in the United States, not just in Europe, but in in Asia as well. And so you have Asian, you have Asian students in in China, especially at the turn of the century, who were being taught that traditional Chinese music was not valid and that European classical music was the only way to go. So it's a worldwide thing. Things have gotten somewhat better in some universities, like I I just discovered that Howard University is now allowing voice minors and voice majors to take jazz studies classes for the vocalists. But there are still so so many programs 
like at Eastman, they didn't tell me that I wasn't allowed, but they didn't even have a vocal jazz program. So I just took classes along with the with the musicians and I just scatted and I had to learn how to play the trumpet so that I could try to improvise on the trumpet. But they didn't have anyone vocal for me because all of their music teachers only studied European classical music. So I just had to make my own way. And it sounds like you did find a way, but again, this is so mind-blowing that there were obstacles even in a Black university like Howard to be able to participate, learn, and hone a craft in a cultural way that is in line with the university. There is a gospel choir and Howard University has an amazing gospel choir, but for years, but for many, many years, decades, students were were not, if you were a voice major or a voice minor, I was a voice minor, we were not allowed to sing in the gospel choir. Now we could sing Negro spirituals, Hmm. but we sang it in a European classical way. We could do music. We, We had to study the music of Black composers who composed music in the European aesthetic, but we didn't study like Stevie Wonder or um, Jimi Hendrix or, or anybody like that. And when I asked why I wasn't allowed to sing any genre of music I wanted to, um, one of my professors told me that you grew up singing all those different kinds of, of music, Black music. You are here to study European classical music so that you can get a job. Ah, so there you go. Yeah. The assumption is that you are here to study music because music is European classical music. And we're here to get you jobs singing arias, singing, getting a job in an opera house. So for those of us who didn't want jobs in the opera houses, those of us who wanted to teach music and do gigs and everything on the side like I did, we had to do gigs in secret. So whenever we practice, we practice in the music room after hours when we knew that the professors were home and we would shed and sing gospel music, make music with each other. But we had to do all of our gigs on the side, on the sly. I was told that if we find out any of you guys are singing anything outside of what you're studying here, you will get your assistantship taken away from you. So we we had to be very, very careful because I didn't want to lose that money. And some students were on scholarship, so they were either really sneaky about it or they just completely gave up singing anything outside of European classical music. It was deep. What a tragedy. Yeah. This was coming as a school policy. You wonder, how did the professors feel? How did their teachers feel having to enforce this kind of uh, policy? on their students, because I can't imagine that they were all in agreement that this was the way to go. My second professor, she used to be a background singer for Aretha Franklin. Her name is Hilda Harris, and she was singing at the Metropolitan Opera, and she traveled down to Howard on Fridays to teach her load of students. So she understood where I was coming from. She was my second voice teacher. My first voice teacher actually asked me, why are you here if you're not here to study classical music. So my second professor, Hilda Harris, the the one at the Met, she used to sing background for Aretha Franklin. So she understood the other way. So she wasn't as hell-bent saying, oh, don't sing any of that other kind of music because she navigated doing both. All of the other professors of voice, they were totally and completely against us Um, singing anything outside of European classical. And the other thing is that it would ruin your voice. So I challenged one of my professors and asked her, 
okay, well, what about Aretha Franklin? What about the Clark sisters? You know, what about Patti LaBelle? They're older and they're doing just fine. So they don't have any vocal damage. And she says, oh, they're just anointed, dear. Not everyone can do that. They're just anointed. Oh my word. I cannot believe that. So it was like they were touched by God and that's the only reason why this type of music didn't hurt them. Yep. Is that what she's saying? Yeah, that that's exactly what she was saying. So that's what my project ended up being about, about the history of this, where it comes from, where this mindset comes from, how it affects our pedagogy and also also surveyed music teachers in um, Rochester, New York, to find out what were their attitudes about singers outside of European classical. So I would play examples of like Stevie Wonder, the jazz singer Diane Reeves, not letting them know who they were. I would just play examples and I had them rate the singers based on what they believed their vocal health was. And so one person in particular, when they were listening to Stevie Wonder, they said, Hmm, that sounds like Stevie Wonder. So if it's Stevie Wonder, I'm going to say that that's vocally healthy. But if it wasn't Stevie Wonder, I would say that that's probably vocally unhealthy. They would do it based on what they perceived based on, you know, the longevity of of that person's career. And I also had them answer the question, have you been trained in anything outside of European classical music, any sort of pedagogy outside of that? And none of them had. And in doing research about it now, it's still an issue. Music academia does not train educators to do anything, to have any pedagogy outside of European classical music. So it's not like Glee. Remember the show Glee where they were coming out and singing all kinds of pop music and R&B? It's not like that. No, it's, it's, it's not like that at all, especially not in Texas. Now, when I went to school, uh, I went to high school in, in Florida. Florida Back in the 80s, when I was in high school, they did allow that. So I was I was allowed to sing any genre I wanted to when, when I went to, to contest. And I was a Florida all-state singer. So I, I was singing jazz. And then I taught for a few months in Miami, where I went to school. And right, right after I graduated from Howard, and when we were getting kids ready for contests, the kids got to choose any genre they wanted to. Texas, on the other hand, is not that way. That's why I was shocked when I moved here to see how rigid they are and how they have a prescribed music list. And you have to choose music from that prescribed music list. Musical theater songs are not allowed. You can't get up there and sing a rock and roll song. It's just not, it's not allowed in any of of the contests. What a shame and what missed opportunities. Yes, I, I completely agree. Really shutting the door on a lot of things. I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and ask you about a big topic of conversation in the arts world, which is cultural appropriation. What is your perspective and your experience? What is the difference between cultural appropriation and simply being influenced by another race or culture in your in your art? To me, cultural appropriation Okay, I'll give an example of um, Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley went went to Black churches, was imitating Sister Rosetta Tharp, not giving any credit to where these styles come from, pretending like it's your own. People like Justin Bieber, who can make fun of Black people and actually use the N-word, but was groomed by Black artists 
at the times where he was using the N-word, making fun of Black people. He was very, very popular, but not giving any sort of, of credit, any sort of homage, any sort of thanks to the culture that created this style from the people that, that you were making fun of and calling the N-word. To me, that that's what appropriation is, where you're you're imitating a culture and claiming it as your own and not giving any respect and credit to the people who created it. I respect musicians who give credit and, and pay homage to to the people who came before them, especially with, with Black music, because it's music that came from a lot of pain. And when you are pretending that it's something that you made up without acknowledging any of the history that caused that pain and those wails and those hollers and those growls that those pains come from, then to me, that's totally not cool. That's commercializing. Yes, it's very commercializing and it erases. To me, appropriation erases culture and doesn't respect the culture that, that came before you. Kind of circling that back to what we were talking about before with you know songs in the academic world that the blackface minstrel songs, et cetera, or any kind of stereotypical racist songs that are whitewashed in our education. Do we remove these from the curriculum or do we actually sit down and say, here's the song, here is the origin, and this is what it means and why it's painful or why it's offensive? Or you just need to know, what is your stance on which way to handle that music shift? I love history. And so when I teach music, I teach it within a social and cultural context. I don't have a problem with, with the teacher teaching a song from, from Blackface minstrelsy if you use it as a history lesson to teach about the pain that that person must have felt when they, they wrote the lyrics to this song, what the dialect is, how some people make fun of Black dialect, but Black dialect, Ebonics, is absolutely amazing because it mixes different ethnic groups together so that they have a, a common language. So even just talking about the dialect in Blackface minstrel songs, talking about where that comes from and why Africans coming to America dur during slavery, why they, they created the word ain't, just talking about it from, from an historical and cultural context. To me, that, that's the only responsible way to use some of the songs that have been flagged. And then talking with other music teachers about this, another way that, that I always did, I, I never used many American folk songs because though I didn't know the history at the time, I knew that a lot of them came from slavery, which I was not comfortable with. So I, I did way more world music history songs and songs that, that I learned as, as a little girl that came from the Black experience, not from blackface minstrel songs. Songs that made me question like, okay, what does this song mean? I don't know, so I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna use it. Right. I one hundred percent agree with you on all of that. Like I'm just learning I'm fifty one years old. I'm just learning all this now about these songs that I was taught in elementary school and middle school. Now that I do, I have a big appreciation for the history behind it and I can learn from it. And it helps me with making decisions move forward. So I'm always a proponent of, like you said, use it as an educational tool. That's what we're in class for anyway, right? Yeah. Is to get an education on these things. So I 100% agree. I have a hard time, even like you might know with the uh, old Looney Tunes 
you know, they had a lot of references, black minstrel face and, yes. and a lot of stereotypes. And I say, wait a minute, don't ban it all because they try to ban it all. I'm like, when you ban it all, then people either it's like, you know, there's a resistance that happens and why not use that as a teaching opportunity and why yeah. not learn? This is where we were. Look how far we've come yeah. and how much more work we still need to do. I find it as an exercise in not just intellectual capacity, but an emotional capacity as well. Just erasing it from the face of the earth doesn't show how our cultures have interacted in the past and how we can improve upon that in the future. Yes, it's like that. I think it's an African proverb that says that people without knowledge of its history is like a tree without roots. If you don't know where you came from, you're going to repeat the, the same mistakes. So erasing it, erasing away the pain, it's not going to do any, anyone any service. But if you put it within, within context and educate people, I, I agree 100%. You can't ignore it. Absolutely. Okay, we have touched on a lot of really deep, heavy things. So we can take a deep breath, everybody in the audience. And I, I want to turn towards something a little bit more lighthearted. Okay. <laughs> I would love to talk to you a little bit about the app, the gaming app, and the cartoon, You Better Sing. Just as a brief summary on what it is, the goal or the objective of it. Creating You Better Sing. Uh, so I created it in 2009. It was originally going to be a show on um, KLRU as a music show for for tweens and, and teens. I created it because when I used to teach middle school music, kids did not like having to learn ear training and sight singing, sight reading, sight singing. So I wanted to make it fun. Ever since I was a little girl, I always turn into into different people. Whenever it was time to teach sight singing, I would always talk like this. Okay, class, it's now time to learn about sight singing. And we're going to talk about <laughs> and fa, so, la, ti, do. And we're going to have a lot of fun. And, and so I would always turn to these different characters. So I decided to take those characters and turn it into a cartoon when I left my school district to become an entrepreneur. So I ended up finding an animation team. I, I had all these scripts in my head. I wrote the scripts. I wrote the music. I got my my best buddies who who always turned into people j just like me. A lot of people on my church music team, and we helped my cartoon to come to life. And I ended up selling the first two cartoon episodes on Amazon, and working as a consultant for different school districts to introduce sight singing to to students in a fun way, while also introducing hip-hop and R&B into the music education curriculum, which, as you know, we don't celebrate, in, especially in Texas and in some, some other states, too. So it's my way of putting hip-hop and R&B into the classroom while teaching something that all middle school and high school teachers have to teach, and elementary school, too. So it's a way of having culturally responsive music education products in the classroom. And the, the characters come from, from different cultural backgrounds as well. And we do have one, one character who is non-binary as well. So I touch on that too. It helps children to see themselves in the products. So that's why I created it. And then later I created a, a game app as well um, that students who are in my You Better Sing vocal ensemble, that they helped me to create 
with with the different phrases to give kids feedback on how well they're sight singing. I had my my kids come up with, with different things that they could say like, that's all right, boo-boo, keep on trying. Or <laughs> I just got my You Better Sing vocal ensemble students involved because I wanted their voices in these products because that's my target audience. It's it's the students, also the teachers too, but I, I, want, I want the students to relate to my products. If we want to continue to get the next generation interested in pursuing music or music industry career, then let's include what they're excited about, which is what they're hearing on Spotify or Apple or the car radio or radio, you know, whatever it may be, whatever their source may be, because otherwise we're losing them. They're thinking, oh, well, this is outdated or old and stodgy or somebody else's music. And why should I continue to pursue it? For our audience members, I highly encourage you after the show to visit the show notes page, backstagechess.com. Look at the sample video that uh, Kelly has uploaded onto YouTube. It shows not just the sight reading, but the audiation, listening to the notes. And also, I love the hand gestures. So you're getting that kinetic feel along with the visual and the audio. And the characters don't have arms so that you can really focus on what their hands are doing. They're, they're doing the solfege hand signs that all children have to do when they're in elementary, middle, and high school. Brilliant. We never had anything like that in our, in our classes growing up. And it's so nice to see that there is progress and forward movement in teaching methods that, to me, seem very effective. I used it with um, kindergarten all the way up to uh, fifth grade, and they all were able to audiate and, and sightseeing by the end of, of the school year. With our nonprofit, our mission is to uplift the next generation of women in music. And I so appreciate that you're doing this, that you're targeting this group and making it easier and fun for them to pursue a career in music. Thank you so much. We're getting ready to wrap up our conversation, which has flown by so quickly. What advice would you give to teens? And of course, especially teen girls. I always told my, my You Better Sing vocal ensemble members, it is so important to understand the laws of in entertainment law so that you can protect your music and to own your music. It's not just enough to copyright your music, but you also need to own the publishing rights to your music. That's how Taylor Swift has made so much money. She owns the publishing rights to her music. It's very important to understand entertainment law and to get help with that. Reach out to people or get an entertainment lawyer or, or just read up about it yourself. It's so important to copyright and own the publishing of your music. Understand music as a business. That was the biggest thing that I always wanted my You Better Sing students to learn. Understand music as a business because I did not Protect your music, protect yourself. Kelly, I would love to thank you for taking the time out to chat today and give such an amazing history and eye-opening chat with us about ethnomusicology and how our music that we're learning in our classrooms are influencing us or, as the case may be, not influencing or educating us and what we can do to 
change that and and help the music industry grow. Because as we all know, music is the great uniter, but we all have to we all have to work to that end, right? That's right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us today for another episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. As you know, we love sharing stories and insights from women like Kelly Glover because they inspire us to be dreamers, rule breakers, and rock stars. We'll see you next time. It's a wrap. This show is a production of Horizon Music Foundation. Audio engineering for this episode was provided by Podcast Engineers. The show was produced by Thea Wood. Theme music came from Pond5, and we couldn't uplift the next generation of women in music if it weren't for social media coordinator Eleanor Bush, intern Yuritsa Therese, and all the volunteers and donors who support Horizon Music on a regular basis. If you'd like to join the cause, more information is available at horizonmusic.org.